Hello and welcome to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with your hosts, Lewis Cleland and Clark Burrow. On the podcast today, we've got another special guest joining us. As always, if you see us on Instagram at A Wee Bit of Everything Podcast or Twitter at Burrow underscore Mister or Claire at Cleland Lewis 94, we'd be grateful if you could give us a wee retweet and a share um, just to get the podcast out there so that others can listen to it as well. So, Mr. Burrow, do you want to tell everybody who we've got in store today on the next episode of the podcast? Absolutely, I can do that for you, no problem. This week on the podcast, we're delighted to welcome Professor David Kirk onto the show. David was actually my master's dissertation supervisor, believe it or not, Lewis, so um, I've got that relationship from back then. Um, David's currently the Professor of Education and former Head of School of Education at the University of Strathclyde. He is an educational researcher with teaching and research interests in educational innovation, curriculum history, and physical education and sport pedagogy. David is a founding editor of the peer-reviewed journal Physical Education and Sport Pedagogy, and he's also the editor of Routledge Studies in Physical Education and Youth Sport. He has held academic appointments previously in universities in England, Australia, Ireland, and Belgium, and is currently Honorary Professor of Human Movement Studies at the University of Queensland. His most recent book, Precarity, Critical Pedagogy and Physical Education, was published by Routledge in 2020. We will hear more in, in more detail about his work that he published recently very, very shortly. So I think it's about time we get David onto the show. Hi David, how's, how's things? How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us um, on a wee bit of everything to share your experience and knowledge around the growing prevalence of precarity and the effects on children's mental health and wellbeing. So, um, diving right into it then, David, can you tell us and the listeners a little background information on your career to date? Um, yes, I can. Um, I actually spent most of my time uh, working life outside Scotland. Um, I did my B.Ed. at the SSPE, Scottish School of Physical Education at Jordan Hill, way back in the 70s. Um, nice. We were one of the first, um, we were the first uh, B.Ed. cohort. Now, the guys in the years ahead of me um, were doing studying for the three-year diploma, um, which is interesting, and I'll come back to it, because I think it's actually quite a significant kind of watershed moment um, in physical education in Scotland and in other parts of the world more generally. Um, but uh, I taught in Belsil, at Belsil Academy for 24 months, exactly. <clears throat> um, and then I did a full-time master's at University of Glasgow and then a, a PhD at Loughborough. Then I left um, for Australia and spent the next uh, 16 years there. And um, when I came back to uh, the UK at the end of uh, the 1990s, I, I went to Loughborough University where I'd done my PhD. Okay. And then worked in another couple of universities in, in England and Returned to Scotland um, something like over 30 years later um, in 2014. And uh, there I was at University of Strathclyde. I've been head of school of education for uh, three years and uh, and I'm a professor of education there. So, yep. So you've been far travelled then. What was it like over in Australia? Who were you based for there? Uh, I spent two spells in Brisbane um, at the University of Queensland. Uh, Right. And then between that, sandwiched in between, I was at Deakin University in Geelong. So 
Where's, where's, the, where's Geelong? Is that north? Oh, Geelong. No, it's, uh, it's in Victoria. It's just, uh, oh, Victoria. It's just to the, the south and west of Melbourne, about an hour away. All right, okay. Uh, yeah. Nice. Yep. Yeah, it's a beautiful country. I loved it. Um, but, you know, it is very, very far away. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I promised my wife and her father that we would go for five years and then come back again. So 16 years later, um, it was <laughs> my luck. Enjoy, enjoying the sun. I'm sure enjoying I'm the sun. Queensland. Well, interestingly enough, you hide from the sun. And physical education teachers there have got terrible problems with uh, skin cancers, melanomas. Uh, yeah. And you should see them. They, when they teach outside, they've got big, big straw hats on. Yeah, they need to. Plastered with, uh, um, with sunblock and um, long sleeves. They're all covered up, you know. What's the, the rule, isn't it, over there? It's no hat, no play. Absolutely. That's, that's for the kids anyway. Yeah. Well then, David, as, as a professor of education at the University of Strathclyde, and as you were saying there, you're the head of school for the last three years, and you've done obviously a lot of research in physical education. Um, so why do you believe physical education um, is such a complex su- subject to teach? And if, well, that's if you do think that, why do you think it's an important issue to be aware of? Um, I'm not so sure it's a complex subject to teach, but I'm certainly, I'm certainly convinced it's a very challenging subject to teach. Um, and I, I mentioned to you that, that I was the first of a new B.Ed. cohort mm-hmm. uh, in the 1970s. And what happened overnight was that the, the knowledge base for teaching physical education changed. So to give you an example, the guys that were on the three-year diploma course ahead of me, they did gymnastics every day for three years. They practice gymnastics. I did gymnastics um, once a week for two of my four years of my course. Um, they didn't have anything like the the, the degree sort of worthy degree um, type knowledge that we needed to put into the BEd in order for it to be degree worthy. So overnight, what happened was in Scott Scott, um, and this happened to both the men and the women. And at that time. And we had separate colleges in Scotland. I don't know if you know this, um, but the Dunfermline College was over in Edinburgh, and we were in Glasgow at Jordan Hill. Right. Um, and and so we had separate we had separate training for men and women, but more or less the same thing happened. Um, now, my concern is that we're teaching curriculum for excellence. Okay, has changed the policy context, and 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 there are different concepts being used in physical education. There's no question about that. But when I go into schools and I see what's been taught on the ground, it doesn't look that much different from what I was teaching at Bells Hill many, many years ago. It doesn't look that much different. But the knowledge base for teachers has changed enormously. So we no longer have the practical knowledge expertise that, that we once had back in the 70s and prior to that. And yet we're, we're still teaching more or less the same curriculum, albeit I know we've now got examinable subjects in, in the secondary school. So that's different. And of course, that's drawing on that knowledge, the degree level knowledge that teachers bring into the subject. Um, so I think it's a massive challenge to, to, to try to teach what we are teaching. But having said that, and, and I've been thinking about this a fair bit recently, the, the kind of multi-activity, what I've called multi-activity sport technique focused physical education, sport technique based, um, that I talk about in the book, uh, Physical Education Futures, that came out in 2010. Um, it's actually really only the only logical response that you could have to the way that schools are set up, particularly the secondary school. 
So if you think about it, the two fundamental coordinates of time and space, timetable and the classroom, and that's the smooth operation of the school it, it depends on, on that functioning properly. But what it means for physical education is that we get, we get shoehorned into the same kind of curriculum organization that suits the high prestige, um, high stakes subjects. Mm -hmm. So it's fine for maths to have a single and two doubles or whatever during the week, well, they have more than that, don't they? Um, it's fine for English, it's fine for French and, and so on and so forth. But the people who struggle with that kind of timetable arrangement are the practical subjects, you know, so techie, physical education, art, um, home economics. Um, so I, I think that, that that kind of fragmented experience that kids get, uh, uh, some authors back, writing back in the 70s talk about the musical chairs curriculum, you know, the bell goes, everything gets, all of that concentration built up in the good classroom environment ends and kids go off to the next uh, subject where they have to sit and they have to, um, you know, um, basically the whole thing starts to be re-established again. Um, so I think that's a problem for physical education. And, and, and so I, I would say that we've got, very, we've got a lot of challenges on our hands to, to, to help kids to have a good educational experience in that context. I think it takes a very, very talented teacher indeed uh, to be able to pull that off. Um, mm -hmm. Is that just kind of going by like, for in my school, I think, tell me if I'm wrong here or if I'm right, but in my school, obviously, like the hires and the certificate PE, they get priority. So if I've got like a class of 30 and I'm supposed to be on, say, invasion games and I'm put in one of the smaller gyms, like you're just like, if you're trying to do games based stuff or you, you can't do anything but have a lot of kids sitting off at the side or it is like the techniques based stuff. Is that where the kind of angle that you're getting at from that? Yeah, I mean, what can teachers meaningfully do in, in a 50-minute in a, a period where they've got 30 kids, mixed ability, mixed motivation, mm -hmm. and you want, to, you want to do something tangible, you know? You're not just going to do what the Americans call roll out the ball and say, just go and play, mm -hmm. you know, entertain yourselves. So you want to teach them something, but what can you teach them practically in that context? Yeah. And it's a very, very limited range of things that you can actually achieve, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And definitely, yeah, we had a we had uh, a teacher on last week from Edinburgh Council, and they had moved to uh, double period because of the, to reduce the the movement around the school. Right. Um. So I thought it was a triple period. Triple period. Triple period. Triple S one P from that makes half, sense. Half ten to ten to one, I think it was. Yeah. Um. So would you be a big kind of advocate of that? Moving to double periods certainly for <laughs> that. Yeah, I I, th I think that um. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that kind of chunking, that kind of blocking of the curriculum would suit a lot of the sorts of things that we would like to do, you know? Um, I mean, okay, so some things you can, they're short-term things. You can only do so much work in the, um, let's say, in the fitness suite or in the gym or, or whatever. But there's other things you would like to do that actually would lend themselves to that amount of time. Um, I, I'd be a big advocate for, for something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So see in terms of you saying it's a challenging uh, subject, David, would you, would you then prefer to see rather than being mixed motivation and mixed ability to, to streamline P? No, 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 I wouldn't say that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I mean, <laughs> how would we go about assessing kids in the first place? Um, how do we deal with maturational issues, you know, with your 12, 13, 14 year olds? Um, if you used a sport-based rationale for, for streaming kids, you would, 
you would have some issues, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, absolutely. So no, I wouldn't be so I wouldn't be so keen on seeing that that sort of thing. But um, I think that the 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 challenging part of this whole thing is the amount of subject matter that, that teachers are stretched across. And we all come into physical education teaching typically with particular strengths, don't we? So some, mm. some are games players and some are swimmers, some are runners, some are whatever. And at OK, you can master a certain degree of kind of introductory knowledge in a, a lot of different activities. But you're certainly not going to get really in-depth to the point where you can take kids beyond you know, the kind of introductory sorts of things that they, they might be able to do in a particular activity. So you'll know that myself and Ash Casey have been talking for quite some time about um, a models-based approach to physical education where yep. um, we use pedagogical models rather than using content as the curriculum, the main organizer of physical education. You, you use the pedagogical model, um, which brings together content teaching, learning, and assessment. And it's that irreducible unit together that becomes your organizing principle for, for the whole of the physical education program. So you might be running, for, for example, a sport education unit. Mm -hmm. um, Clark, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we? In a, yeah, yeah. Seminar. Uh, 12, and 12 lessons. These, a minimum of 12 lessons to have a, a meaningful sort of, um, a, a meaningful sports season. Um, then you might be doing a TGFU model, a pedagogical model, um, you might be doing a program based on TGF, teaching games for understanding game sense, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you only need six lessons for that, you know? Um, so you, there might be variability in how you, it depends on what the model demands. And then I think we've got the issue of, okay, can we be specialists in every single model? And again, I don't think so. You know, I think that, that people might then start to become specialized in whatever models that they might be able to offer. But, but look, this is all sort of, fantasy you know it's all it's all theory because there, there, are, there are almost no examples of a models based approach to physical education in reality at this point in time where whole um whole programs are based on pedagogical models mm -hmm. and, and what we do instead is i think we, we what we do is we parachute single pedagogical models like sport education into the multi-activity curriculum and then expect them to work and and that's a that's a big ask Mm -hmm. so, so do you think it's something that should be getting done like from S1 just so they're familiar with it all the time and something that school, like the department should be collectively using yeah absolutely in fact I think they should be in the primary school as well mm -hmm. yeah in fact my, my, my other radical um, claim <laughs> which will probably get me um, um, all sorts of abuse from secondary <laughs> physical education teachers is I actually think we should have specialists in the primary schools yeah, I do think no, we're missing that. that as well. We're missing a trick, you know. How, way back in the day, when um, when children and youth sport in the community was in its infancy, it was reasonable to expect that some kids would come to secondary physical education with very little experience of playing games and sports. Now, the wealthier kids will always have had their community-based sport in some form or other, or had a good physical education in their primary schools, but, but especially for private. But I remember a time when I was a kid growing up in Scotland, you, you couldn't, there, there weren't sports clubs in the community that took kids. But that's all changed dramatically um, now, you know. Um, you can get kids uh, playing organised sport in, in clubs from what, age four, five, mm -hmm. easily. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So, I, so I, I think that situation no longer pertains. And, and what we get then is we get 12-year-olds coming to secondary school, some with incredibly sophisticated experiences in, in sports, games, physical activity, and some with relatively poor. And, and I think that problem's got worse as the time has gone on. So here we've got another part of the challenge for physical education teachers. How do you cope with that massive range of, of competence, ability, experience? Um, I think about my own kids who, who are now in their 20s and um, one, just, one just reached the grand old age of 30. The older guy, by the time he was, um, by the time he's tw he was 12, he had played, I think, two or three seasons of Kanga cricket. This is in Australia. He'd played two seasons of soccer. He had been in a swimming club for three years. By the age of 12, you know, he had, he had, had all of this sporting range. experience. Yeah. A wide range as well. Yep. Right. Um, David, could you then tell us a wee bit more in detail about your most recent research published and the impact this can have on the learning experiences for teachers and pupils? Well, the stuff I've been writing about most recently has been, uh, has been about this concept of precarity. Um, mm. And it might not be very familiar to your listeners, um, but precarity is a concept that describes the relationship between unstable uh, work and health and well-being. And basically, um, it comes from the word obviously precarious. Mm -hmm. So when people are in the gig economy, when they're when they're they've got um, zero hours contracts, they've got um, short-term contracts, rolling contracts, or maybe they get periods of unemployment. That is not good for people because it, it, it fosters uncertainty, it fosters insta instability, it fosters unpredictability. Actually, we've all had a wee taste of this in the last nine months. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. and, and, we, and we know that it's, it's, ton, it's ton of some people very ill indeed, um, that they, they can't predict anything, they can't plan for anything, you know? We, we um, sorry to interrupt, but we had a guest on and we actually were speaking about this and it was... Like, for just the, the example that he gave was teachers and people that have gone from school, uni, and then they've went into a career, and they've been in that career for ages, so they're just used to getting up, they've got the routine, they go to work, and they don't have that skill set of what to do if, like, something like this does happen. Like, how do yeah. I actually get back out and go and make some money? Whereas he was saying he's just been used to um, doing loads of different little projects to earn money, and that's how he was making his money as... And he said it was easier for him in this situation, which was quite interesting. And I'd never thought he's already self-sufficient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Aye. Well, I, I think being self-sufficient for this sort of situation was a tough call. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I think human beings um, are much happier when they can predict and they yeah. can plan. Mm -hmm. Even if your plans don't not necessarily work out for you all the time. Yeah. And, and the idea that, for example, you've got career and you've got career prospects, you get the possibility of promotion, you get the possibility of doing a higher degree, you get the possibility of whatever, you know, you take all of that away and people who, now, poverty is attached to precarity, no question about it, but there are, there are a lot of people who live in precarity, even temporarily from time to time, at university academics is one example, where they're on short contracts and short-term contracts and so on, um, it might be some teachers um, are actually experiencing precarity. And there's, certainly in England, where um, the whole of education has been marketized and commercialized, and it's very much like the American situation, teachers finding themselves in, in really quite precarious circumstances with their contracts, without any kind of union representation, and so on and so forth. So 
there's no question that 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 precarity has been on the rise. Um, but it's and, and we we see the signs of it. The signs of it are there. So we've, we're hearing about this emerging crisis in in young people's children and young people's mental health. This is so kids who live in precarious circumstances, who live in precarity, whose parents live in precarity, um, are more and more experiencing um, what a sociologist Guy Standing calls the four A's of precarity: anger, anxiety, alienation, and anomie. Anomie is a fancy word for saying that people can't behave themselves; they can't behave appropriately in particular settings. You might immediately begin to be thinking about some of the kids in some of your classes. Um, where they're difficult to get to be biddable or, or to, to behave in any way that's appropriate. So we're seeing more and more of this in schools and there's no question that I think um, physical education teach this is not a problem that's coming, this is a problem we've got now. It's there already um, and, and have teachers been given any kind of training to deal with this? Have they been given any kind of support? Um, I would suspect no. So, so what we've been doing is we've been asking the question what should physical education's response be to precarity? And this is where curriculum for excellence I think is very helpful because um, what we've been talking about is, is we need to develop what we call pedagogies of effect, where the effective domain becomes um, the, 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 the main intended learning that's happening. So come back to your example of the guy who's been doing different jobs and so on. How resilient are people when these sorts of things come along? Do they persevere? Are they able to persevere? Um, are they motivated? Uh, do they get interested in things? Um, are they happy? <laughs> you know? And how can physical education work with kids who are living in precarity, who are experiencing these issues and problems? And, and so we've been talking about pedagogies of effect. Um, in the book, uh, I identify a range of pedagogies of effect that I think have been been around for quite some time, actually. So Don Hellison's work with uh, teaching personal and social responsibility, I think, is a pedagogy of effect. Mm. Um, I think various versions of sport education, for example, um, sport for peace, Cathy Ennis's work is a pedagogy of effect. I think Kim Oliver's work, uh, the activist approach to working with adolescent girls, uh, Carol Lamb's been doing that work with her doctorate at Strathclyde. Um, and we've got teachers in Scotland who've been, who've been working on her project. Um, I had a PhD student called um, Asian Teraoka, Japanese, uh, who just finished this year, who uh, did a study um, of the extent to which Scottish teachers teach for effective learning. Um, now, these were teachers who claimed to be, have a special interest in personal qualities from Curriculum for Excellence. They, they, they put their hand up and said, Hey, this is yes, this is my thing. This is what I'm really working hard on. So Asian went into schools and he he um, he filmed two lessons from the regular classes, and um, and then he did and he did some focus. Uh, he did some um, questionnaires with the kids, and then that was phase one of his study. And then the second phase, he 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 edited clips of the videos, and he sat down with the teachers and played the clips back and got them to tell them what they were seeing, what was happening here, what's going on there. It's really, really nice um, methodology. Um, and meantime, we also did some focus groups with some of those pupils as well. Um, and he, what he found was that, that many of these teachers are actually doing a really, really good job 
often in quite difficult circumstances, um, to teach for effective learning. So we, we know that, that some Scottish physical education teachers are already doing this, which is fantastic news, I think. Um, but of course, it's their response. They can see the need. They can see it in their kids. They can see that they need to be changing the ways that they go about teaching physical education. Um, and I think that the, the, the old-fashioned idea that it's all about skill development and that's all we do, I mean, I, I really don't think that that's, that's going to cut it now. Mm -hmm. Not to say that that's not important. It is important. We know from the research that perceived competence is, is crucial for kids. Um, you know, uh, but that's, so that's what we've been working on, Lewis, is, is, um, is uh, looking at what physical education's response to this uh, precarious situation can be. And of course, it's just been exacerbated now, hasn't it, with COVID? Mm -hmm. um, I think also a lot of people, teachers, like the, the way PE jobs go as well, like you could probably say that they've been living precariously because uh, it's always like temporary contracts and it's hard yeah. to get a foot in the door with PE teaching as well. So mm -hmm. that's, probably been out, that's probably been around for a long time. It has. I remember it from, from my time when I resigned my job at, at Bells Hill. Uh, there was a guy who had been in the year behind me. He, he just, uh, he was looking for a job. He couldn't get a job anywhere. And he wrote me, wrote me a wee note saying, thank you very much for making this job, job available. <laughs> <laughs> so you cleared the so, way and gave him, gave him a chance. <laughs> so that's been, that's been around since the 1980s off and yeah. on, you know. Uh -huh. I suppose we like the, the models. That's what um, we had a primary PE specialist on. He was um, a big advocate of the sport education model. And um, like you can tweak those models of teaching and you can put like, instead of making it all results based and stuff, you can, you can really hammer in all the personal qualities and award points for all that sort of stuff and teach it through that way. And that's Absolutely. when it kind of becomes unreal effective as well. Um, so I, yep. that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And then you start, you start to reward the, the effective uh, learning experiences as well through that don't you and then you, you see the value in it and how it can help you your team and your and yourself i suppose but, but, I but just a wee just a wee word of warning on this though um i, I my, my own feeling is that, that the scottish secondary school is so dominated by examination pressure um that anything that's not pushing in that direction gets marginalized mm -hmm. and so i think physical educators need to be very careful in how they pitch this to their principals and their, um, you know, uh, their, their principal teachers and, and heads of faculty and stuff. Um, I, I've been doing a, a study with a, a, an ED student at Strathclyde where she's been looking at different forms of outdoor learning in secondary schools. And all the teachers say, we need this stuff, you know? And it is, it's, it's all work in the effective domain. We need this stuff, but then, of course, the kids who get most of the outdoor learning are the kids who don't do well on the competitive academic curriculum. Mm -hmm. So straight away, there's a particular subset of um, pupils in schools that are the outdoor learning groups. And then, because it's mainly about the effective domain um, mm -hmm. and not about exams and not about the prestige and so on that, that all that brings, then it gets marginalised even further. Mm -hmm. So whilst we see the need for this, I do think that there needs to be there needs to be serious reform in Scottish secondary mm -hmm. schools. I, I believe of the pressures that examinations put on teachers, the pressures it puts on young people, um, and the pressures it puts on the system. Because all of the priorities, I think, are way way off. We get mm -hmm. this emerging crisis of mental illness amongst young people, and here we are 
um, talking about how important it is to get your higher mass and all the rest of it. Yeah, it doesn't help. I think it's also important to develop the, the life skills as well, though, that live with them beyond the higher mass. Absolutely. Yep. Well, that kind of leads us on nicely to my next question then, David. So what steps do you feel PE teachers can take to improve their uh, practice as a department in school? Or what support might they need and what are the kind of barriers, do you feel? Well, you know, I've always felt for a long time that, that um, universities are a, a fantastic resource that, that teachers, for some reason or other, seem to not be um, either aware of or willing to sort of tap into. Um, we're funded by public money. So your taxes pay our salaries, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and there are, there are, there's good capability uh, in Scotland in some of the universities to provide research and to provide knowledge exchange activities that teachers can tap into. It needs to be organised, you know. There's not infinite resources there. But um, Clark's aware that we've, we've established a wee practitioner researcher hub um, relatively informal at the moment you know but people can drop into and we've been running some some events and um, we had a, an event last last week where I spoke about sport education from a sort of research point of view and then um, teacher from just uh, down the road from where I live here at Carrick Academy came in and, and I'd done an in-service there at the department on sport ed and, and he came in and talked about how the school are approaching using the, the this we we've got access to to um, research, we've got access to all the journals, all the books, we've got access to national and international networks of very, very bright people who also do research, but also work with teachers in their local contexts. Mm -hmm. So um, I think working together in communities of, communities of practice is, is, is the way to go. I think that's the, and I think physical education teachers should be looking around and saying, okay, where's my local university? Who's, who's, who's working there? <coughs> Can they, um, I wonder if they're interested in, in helping me out to uh, take forward this wee project I want to do or mm -hmm. um, or whatever. It doesn't need to be somebody who signs up and does a, a, a degree or anything formal like that, you know. Um, along, yeah, along the lines of practice and inquiry then. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but, you know, linking up with other teachers to start with and then linking up with um, the, the universities, I think that would be really really could make a big difference i because it's it's one thing having the research and stuff but it's another thing having the confidence and the sure. ability to go and carry it out and, and try it because that's where where the the struggle comes in i would imagine and then if you're working like with the unis then you've got you've got that support and that would be a big help yeah absolutely i mean somebody comes somebody comes to me and says look david i'm, I'm interested in doing such and such and uh, this is how I'm thinking going about it. And, and I might say, well, have you thought of this? Or do you know about that? Mm -hmm. Or um, can we do a wee bit of training on how you analyse focus group data from your kids? Or, you know, I mean, it could be something relatively mm -hmm. straightforward and simple. Um, plus, I think people sharing information and ideas, I think probably in the practitioner research hub, that's been the most valuable experience for teachers is they come yeah. in and they get to talk to other folk who've got interesting things that they're trying out in their schools, you know, and they think, oh, oh gee, I'm I think that's a great idea. Yeah, no, I, th useful. I think um, unis and schools should do much more of that. I think that's yep. a brilliant, brilliant idea. And you know what? Your local authorities have got money for this. Yep. Um, and it's the it's the reading people and the and the, the numeracy people who all tap into it 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't. You you don't you don't take yeah. advantage of it. At all. It's also motivational as well. See, when you have these conversations about trying things, and it's, oh, I, I want to go and try that, and like it keeps mm-hmm. it all fresh and it keeps yeah. your job exciting almost. And then you find something yeah. that works, and then um, it's, it's it's a great idea. Well, I think I think as well that the impact of COVID on the probationers last year. That I know there's a probationer who was in probation last year's in my department, and there you get cut short because of COVID, obviously, in March. And then student teachers, I know for a fact, are they getting the same experiences what they would be in normal situations because we've got a student teacher in as well. So I think the need, the need for this moving forward to support, you know, them moving forward and not just them, but everybody in general, I think it has had an impact on what normal... Because when it goes back to normal, they might not have experienced normal, if you know what I mean. So yeah, that you can look at as well. Well, I think th- I think that one of the, 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 the silver linings of the... The COVID cloud has been that we can actually use technology like this to bring people together. Mm-hmm. And I've been I've been saying to 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 teachers, look, um, I know people in the states, in Canada, in in uh, Belgium, in Norway, Sweden, um, Australia, New Zealand. They can drop into these sorts of conversations, time time um, time zones permitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this week, well, no, last week I, I gave a keynote to a. A keynote address to a, a, a conference in Bogota in Colombia and uh, this Friday I'm talking to hundreds of teachers and coaches in India again through wow. using this technology so I mean okay it's got its limitations as we were saying before we started up yeah but just the same it, it can do things that that I think we, our first reaction if we talk about a practitioner research or hub would have been for you all to come to the university and sit in a sit in a, a classroom right. there, you know? Yeah. And then you get issues about, well, you know, you can't because you've got a you got a team to coach after school or you've got whatever it else is you need to do. Um so I think a kind of blended approach to this is is probably a good way to take it forward. Even just recorded these sessions as well. So like the C P D sessions that happen and like on Sport Ed they're talking about different things. Just recording them then people can watch them at their own time. Like it's yeah. so accessible. That's what I've seen someone tweet about that as well. She says, I wish all the CPD was all recorded and then it would be there for everyone to listen to, mm-hmm. which I think is a great idea. But... Definitely. Well, lastly then, David, in your opinion, what makes a high-quality teacher? It's a good question. Um, I don't think there's a formula. I don't think there's a one-size-fit-odd. I don't think you can put on a jacket and, and turn a teacher into you know, a high-quality Um but for me, I think that it has to be a teacher who's who's a good learner, mm-hmm. always looking to better themselves, always uh, looking for new ways of doing things. Um, so that for me is the key, absolutely the key. It needs to. They need to be. The, sorry, I think that comes into the effective demand, doesn't it? That determination to. It, it doesn't. Improve. It does indeed. I mean, you need to like children and young people. That helps. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have met teachers who don't. And, <laughs> But but beyond those kinds of you know um, those kind of more obvious things, I think for me the key is that the person's a good learner. Brilliant, some good advice to take away then for our listeners. Right, David. At the end of our podcast, we just have a wee quick fire round of three, so it's just a wee bit of fun just to finish us off. So, if you could have a giant billboard in your hometown or anywhere in the world, what would it say on it? And it doesn't even have to be teaching related; just anything. 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm no good at these sorts of things because, um, and this is why I don't do any tweeting or any of that sort of stuff. Um, I seem to be long-winded and I need a lot of words to say. Yeah. Anything that, but if you're pushing me on this, um, I would say never stop moving and learning. Brilliant. Love it. Right, number two. What book or books have had the greatest influence on your life? Well, I'm sitting in a wee room here surrounded by books. So you can't see them all, but there's shelves and shelves and shelves of them. So trying to pull one out there that I could say made a difference is tricky. But if I'm, again, pushed to do it, um, I really strongly recommend a brilliant book by a guy called Neil Postman, written in the mid-1980s, and it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death, um, a Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. And basically what he was arguing was that all of the major um, institutions in American society had been turned into show business, mainly through television. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it was the beginning of the, the political debates. So it was, uh, it was Dukakis and Reagan. Sesame Street had just appeared. Um, things that we take for granted now had just appeared on TV. I think that his argument has only become stronger with digital society. But the main reason why I like the book is not, not just that theme, but because he is an absolute wizard at writing in a clear, lucid way about, about difficult uh, uh, complex concepts mm-hmm. and so I, I use this with my students uh, and it's been for me a kind of book I go back to from time to time just to remind myself David you need to be clearer in what you say you need to be more direct yeah you need to use simpler language shorter sentences etc you know yeah that's interesting because there's you're not the, the first person to say that they take a lot of stuff like from books and use it when they're giving lectures or when they're teaching they take mm-hmm. like wee analogies and that from it it just helps with understanding. That's good when you're teaching as well. Want to mm. keep it short for the kids, isn't it? Uh, he's, got, he's got a great example. He's got a lot of these, but I'll just give you the one. He's, he's taken Marshall McLuhan's idea that the medium is the message. Okay? But he actually says it's, it's actually not the message, it's the metaphor. And, and what he does is he gives this example. Okay, the medium is a red, a red, a red Indian who's sending up smoke signals. What kind of message can you send through smoke signals? Well, you certainly can't have, you can't have a detailed philosophical discussion. It would be extremely difficult. You need a lot of firewood. You need a very still day and a lot of time. You know? So it's just such a nice example of mm-hmm. what can you do with this medium? What can you communicate through this medium? Uh, and it becomes a metaphor for, for what is possible in, in communication. So he's got tons of those, you know, I, I, I just dip in and you find another one. Mm-hmm. It's great. Brilliant. Yeah. I need to buy that. Right, number three then, final one. What advice would you give to a student teacher about to enter the working world or what advice should they ignore if you feel there is any? Um, well, I mean, for me, if it was me advising my younger self, um, I think it's uh, always be true to yourself. You know, um, I read a, I read a, I mean, I know physical education staff rooms can be places where there's a wee bit of banter gets thrown around, but they can also be places where the sort of the, the social hierarchies are quite powerful. And, you know, young teachers either have to conform or else they, their lives get made very difficult for them. There's a recent book published about two or three years ago about physical education workplace culture by a team from Australia led by a guy called Tony Rossi. And, and it talks about this. Um, it talks about how some, some teachers don't make it past the first or second year 
you know, um, because the, the, the workplace culture is really just overwhelming for them. Now, I'm not saying this is the case everywhere, because clearly it isn't. But I think that this belief in yourself, always be true to yourself. Always, always if you've got some core beliefs, then you, you stick with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't be afraid to say what they are as well. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that becomes easier the more, like, the older you get as well. Sure. For sure, but no, that rounds us off very nicely. So thanks again for agreeing to do this with us tonight, David. Really appreciate you giving up your time to come on and share your experience. You're very welcome. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, David, thanks very much for your time. Right, well, that brings us to the end of another um, episode of A Wee Bit of Everything and another very, very interesting guest that we had on today. Very knowledgeable as David Kirk sharing some of his... Um, recent research into precarity and welfare and education. So what would be your key takeaway message from tonight's episode? Just following on from what you said there, the precarity and the effects on on children's mental health is something that's very raw, isn't it? It's very current. Um, And I'm sure we'll we'll not really know the the full effect of COVID until we're later down the line. But I think teachers and staff that I work with are certainly doing their very, very best to help the young people um, continue their education and provide that nurturing environment for them because that's really important isn't it? Mm, no definitely especially in the current um, state of affairs that we're in Yeah over and, up, over and above the skill development side of it as David was talking about he was speaking about how important it is to develop the effective domain like the blue side of the personal qualities for the benchmarks mm-hmm. and he was talking about sport education being the vehicle to do that, and I, I totally agree with that because I'm, as as you know, running the, the sport education model for the school of football boys and girls, and because you said actually just off camera there, that's about how important it's really important to create a competitive environment. I think when you can when sport can create that competitive environment, then it brings the personal qualities to life. Like how can they tolerate getting beat? How can they tolerate having someone in their team that isn't as good as them? Mm. How can they show leadership and responsibility to develop them? Yeah, I think without that competitive environment and that sport and physical side, then the personal qualities are harder to teach in a classroom environment. Yeah, for sure. No, I totally agree with you there. I thought it was interesting what David said when I asked him the question about what can PE teachers in schools or PE teachers in departments do to improve their practice and stuff in the current climate that we're in. And I think he said, he spoke about having like the community partnerships with the unis to find out what the kind of current research is and how teachers can be trying different things within their practice and really making use of that. He said it's that maths and English departments and stuff make use of that funding, but PE very seldom does. I think that's a great idea because it's always the it's always a thought trying to change something and do something brand new, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And always a thought of am I going to do it right or like how do I know what I'm doing? So but I think as well you can do it virtually as you said. You can do it virtually, yeah, and you can always have that kind of conversation um, over a Zoom call and feedback, reflect on right. it, and feedback and plan, me and you, plan together. You used to go into Strathclyde, you know, every, was it one Monday, one Monday a month? Yeah. But, you know, that cost like 30 quid because I always went to Buddies after it in the south side. And I was coming for five. <laughs> Aye, so we ended up, you know what I mean, we ended up having a, make, making a night of it. But Aye. as David said, you can do it for the comforts of your own home. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. Uh, We hope you enjoyed that one as much as we did. And if you see us on Twitter, Instagram, or any social media platforms, 
be sure to give us a wee retweet or a share or even give us a wee comment and let us know what you're thinking of the podcast. And if you don't mind, if you could take two minutes of your time to jump onto the Apple podcast or the Spotify podcast app and give us a wee review again, because that's another way that can help get the podcast out there so that others can listen to it as well. Right, until next time, we hope you enjoyed that episode and we hope you have a great week. Take care. Bye-bye.